Our scripture this morning is from Psalm chapter 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 2. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the gospel of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, as we marvel at this scene of humble King Jesus entering the city in this triumphal moment of reception, would you meet us this morning and move in us afresh that we would perceive something about your love for us, something about your goodness, your greatness, that either we've missed before or maybe we've grown cold to. And would you draw us deeper into the story of Jesus, that we might live toward you and toward our neighbor in love, and that we might bear good fruit in your world in union with Christ. So do what you will with this time we pray. We ask you to bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So this Lent, we've been doing this series um, where we've been sort of a series of Lenten Beatitudes, right, of blessed are. Uh, it's a resource we've been using from Duke Divinity School, Kate Bowler there. Um, and we've looked at different Lenten blessings, uh, recognizing the lives that we actually have and the way that God meets us in these places of imperfection or of curiosity or of suffering or mourning or loneliness. And today, our final one, we come to this on Palm Sunday, blessed are the rejected. And interestingly, juxtaposed with that blessing is this story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem, being welcomed with acclaim. It's not a story that looks like rejection, at least not yet, right? Not this episode. And so here we are, and we're sitting with this topic, blessed are the rejected, and this moment of Jesus being welcomed with palms and shouts and cloaks being poured, put down on the ground. And this is what we have to sit with this morning. It's the sort of irony of Palm Sunday. And I love Palm Sunday because it's, it's, a, it's such a complicated day. But it's such a complicated day in a clear way that takes us into the complicated nature of our own hearts. Because we live with disordered hopes, every one of us. And what Palm Sunday allows us to unpack a little bit is the way in which what we hope for and what we hope in relate to one another. Because you see, this story of Palm Sunday is a moment where the people who are gathered in Jerusalem have some big hopes and dreams. They hope for liberation from Rome. And when they see Jesus coming, they hope in him that he'll bring them that, right? They, they hope in him because they believe that he'll give them what they hope for. But here's the payoff, I think, for all of us as we enter the Palm Sunday story. This is maybe the hard lesson that we have to, to let change us or meddle with our hearts. And it's just this, that on one hand, God shows us in this story that God is for us so much more deeply and more committedly than we believe. And at the same time, God is for your agenda or my particular agenda a lot less than we think he should be. And those two things travel together. See, we live in a world and in selves in which we're tempted to think, if God is for me, then God will be for what I want. And sometimes that's true. But what happens is often if we're, if we're leading with what we hope for and we relate to God as one who will hopefully give us what we hope for, what do we do? We follow him only as far as he'll give us what we want. We follow him because we hope he'll take us where we want to go. But what we find at Palm Sunday and in the story is that God doesn't come to take us where we want to go. God has come to take us where he wants to take us. And now the truth is that where God wants to take us, where Jesus is going and bringing us with him, is actually better and more glorious than the little, the little hopes and dreams that we come up with. But the fact remains, what we hope for and what we hope in get tangled up. And so as we're met, we meet Jesus on this road and we kind of descend into this story, we need to look at what the crowd is doing. 
and we need to see where the story is headed. So let's just get into it, if you would, uh, starting in these first verses. When they'd come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, the Lord needs them and he will send them immediately. And then he tells us that the reason he's doing this is to fulfill prophecy. What is happening? Well, this is a prophecy from Zechariah chapter nine, okay? That's what's up with the, with the colt or the donkey and the colt of a donkey is that there's this sign in the prophet Zechariah where what will happen is um, this, God will deliver the people and this is a royal sign and it's, a, um, it's this prophecy that says your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt and he shall demand peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And this donkey is the sign that God's promised king and God's promised peace, God's worldwide reign are coming and that God is going to restore life. And so it's a prophetic sign that shows this is the king that God is doing something great in, right? So that's one of the signs that's at play here is this donkey and Jesus's humble approach on a donkey, which is not a war horse, but it's a humble animal, an agricultural kind of animal. Now there's this other sign here with the palms that's also really important. And we need to understand what's going on with the palms if we're going to understand what's going on with the crowd. But to understand what's going on with the palms, we kind of have to get a little bit into the backstory of what's going on in Israel. They're gathered for Passover. What is Passover? Passover is this freedom festival they celebrate every year, right? In Jerusalem. If you remember where it comes from, the people of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt and God brought them out through the sea. God rescued them from slavery and he brought them through the sea and to the other side and he gave them this meal, which was commemorative of the great redemptive event when God spared them and brought them out. And so the people continued to celebrate the festival annually as a remembrance of God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And as the story moves forward, what you see is the people of Israel, they move through the wilderness for 40 years, they move into the land, they're there, they inhabit the land. That sort of comes to this moment of a golden era under Kings David and Solomon when they have this thriving kingdom. And then after Solomon's death, things start to deteriorate where his sons can't hold it together. There's some civil war, a divided kingdom, and you get a northern kingdom of Israel, a southern kingdom of Judah, and both of those will fall to big bad empires pretty soon. So the northern kingdom is taken by the Assyrians in 722 BCE. The southern kingdom is taken by the Babylonians in 586. And really from that moment forward, to be an Israelite living in the land is to either be one who is under foreign power, an occupying force, and so you're not free, or you've actually been taken out of the land and you're living in exile in the territory of the foreign power, right? That's how the story goes. And so after you got, so you have the Assyrians, then you have the Babylonians, and then you have the Persians who come in after them, and then you have Alexander the Great and the Greeks who come in after them, and then you have the Romans who come in after them. And so by the time you get to Jesus, you have hundreds and hundreds of years in Israel of living under foreign rule. Now there's one little exception to that. There's a little blip in the historical record of an 80-year period where that's not the case, and we'll come back to that in just a minute. 
But the big story is one of the people of Israel living under the rule of another king, of another emperor, of another law. And so it was a life of suffering. It was not a life of freedom. And every year as they would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, to celebrate the Freedom Festival, they would watch and wait for God's anointed one, the Messiah of Israel, who would come and who would restore Israel to its freedom, to its autonomy, to its glory. And they would watch and they would wait. They would pray. They would plead with the Lord. Deliver us, O Lord. Save us now, O Lord. Which if you take that word, save us now, the way that it comes to us is Hosanna. It's what we were just singing. And Psalm 118 would be a psalm that would be sung regularly at these pilgrim festivals where they would come, Lord, save us now, Hosanna, Hosanna. Now there was this one time, like about 200 years or so before Jesus, where there was an uprising. This is sort of during the Greek time. So after Alexander the Great, and he dies, and he doesn't have any successors that he's named, so he's got four of his generals that are all kind of vying for dominion and whatnot, and they get in fights, and they all stick out their claims. There was um, this one group, the Seleucids, who had sort of won over the territory where Israel, uh, that land of Israel, and so they were there. They were the occupying force. And there was this one moment where the Jewish people actually did rise up and revolt against the Seleucids and actually win and drive them out. And they actually established an 80-year period of freedom between when they beat the Seleucids and when Rome came in in 63 BC. There's an 80-year period where they actually did experience freedom. It was glorious. It was a sign of God's faithfulness. It's where the festival of Hanukkah comes from, actually. You can read about it in the book of Maccabees. But there was a leader in that military revolt named Judah, Judah Maccabee, the hammer is his nickname. And he was the figurehead of this, of this revolt. He was the one who led the way for Israel's uprising where they actually did over like this 25 year fight actually beat the big bad bully and win and establish their independence. And when he rode into Jerusalem as the conquering victorious military leader, he rode in and was greeted with palms and they laid their cloaks on the road and they shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the military leader who has come to restore Israel to its former glory. It's him. And the palms became an emblem of military victory. They became an emblem of nationalistic zeal. Even when they minted the coins in that era, the palms were on the coins as signs, as emblems of victory and freedom. So fast forward to Jesus. And here he's come and he's proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. He's come preaching a message of this kingdom of God, release of the captives and restored sight to the blind. He's come to do miracles. He's fed people. He's healed sick people. He's even raised some dead people. 
And obviously the word is getting out about this guy. Obviously he's a candidate, a potential would-be Messiah. Maybe this is the one. And they're in Jerusalem for Passover. They're there. They're, they're praying. Hosanna, Lord, save us now. And they're waiting and they're watching. And then he comes on the Zechariah donkey riding into town. And they all go, this is it. This is it. This is, it's wartime. It's battle time. And they run out to meet him the way you ride out to meet or run out to meet the one who's going to lead you in the uprising. And they start to spread their cloaks on the ground. And you see, at this time, most people would have only had one cloak. And it's not like the kind of thing that you're just going to throw on the ground for, for, as no big deal. It's a kind of a big deal when you throw your cloak on the ground. And here they go. And they, they're throwing their cloaks on the ground. And it's a sign of loyalty, of fealty. It's a royal sign. We actually see this also earlier in the book of Kings, where the coronation of one of the earlier kings, you see the same thing of cloaks being thrown on the ground. And Jesus is riding into town. And Matthew doesn't record the weeping part, but Luke sure does. And Luke records the part where when Jesus gets there and they're meeting him with the shouts of Hosanna and the palms and the cloaks, that he weeps over the city of Jerusalem. He weeps over the city and he says that you didn't recognize the time didn't recognize the time. They don't think they're rejecting him. They think they're celebrating him. They're excited Jesus is coming, right? This doesn't feel like a rejection moment for them because their hope is in him because they think he's going to give them what they hope for. Liberation from Rome by way of military uprising and victory. And they're in. Their cloaks on the ground, palm waving in until they're not. Until they realize that what Jesus is coming to do isn't exactly that. What Jesus is coming to do, what he's going to be doing in the temple, what he's going to be doing in and around Jerusalem in the coming days, it doesn't match what they are expecting from him. It doesn't match what they're hoping for. He's not doing the way that Judah did. He's not following the script of military uprising, he's doing something else. And they are frustrated with him, they're disillusioned, and by Friday they're done. Crucify him. We're out. Because God wasn't doing their agenda. God was doing something else. And what God was actually doing was something far deeper and far greater. What God was doing was actually in Jesus, riding on to die as not only the Messiah of Israel, but the savior of the world, as the one who would be the lamb who would take away the sins of the world by entering all the way in to the deepest and darkest place of the human story, to take upon himself the full weight of human brokenness, the full weight of the wounds of the world, to bear in his own body the wounds that you and I have suffered and the wounds that you and I have inflicted, to be the one who would be the great answer for all that is wrong, who would die on the Roman cross under the tyranny of the empire that would exhaust its biggest threat, 
the threat of death on him. And of course, he would rise above it, eviscerating the empire of its power in a way that those who were looking to military might could have never possibly imagined. But Jesus beats the empire through self-sacrifice and resurrection. He beats the empire, not just Rome, but the evil empire that encapsulates all that is wrong with the world, right? The enemy, the spiritual enemy, evil, selfishness, greed, hate. He conquers it through love. He conquers it through self-giving love. Not by flexing, not by coming on a war horse, not by trampling, not by canceling, but by love. And God does a deeper and a bigger thing in Jesus than what the crowd wants. And that's important for us because as we come to this Palm Sunday moment, as we're reading it toward our lives, as we're joining the crowd with these shouts of Hosanna and acclaim, I think the important question for each one of us in the room is what do we want from Jesus? What do we want from God? Is, are you here in church or are you following God because it adds a little niceness to your life? Is it ornamental on your life? It adds a little, maybe it, it just a, a, a nice layer of community or friendships or spirituality onto a life that's really something that, that you're designing and determining. Or are you following Jesus to wherever it is he wants to take you? And this question is for me too. I mean, I'm, I can recognize in and of myself, yes to both of those things, right? Of course I can recognize places where I'm here because I like it. Am I willing to go with Jesus wherever he wants to take me? I hope so, but sometimes I'm not. That's why we confess our sins. Maybe often I'm not, and you're not, because we're fickle people. And that's what we do on Palm Sunday, is we recognize that we belong in that crowd. We, we belong in that crowd with the disordered hopes because we are those people. We do want things. We do hope and dream for the good life. And whatever it is that you dream about, whether it's that career or that family or healthy kids that grow up and, and, and thrive, or whether it's you know, relationships, a relationship you currently have uh, that you wanna see grow, or a relationship you don't yet have that you really long for, or a long healthy life, whatever it is, right? We long for things and these are good things. And some of them may be part of the story God is writing for us and some of them may not. But the beautiful thing that we find in Jesus is that he's leading us to where he's going and to embark with him on that journey of riding on with Jesus to wherever it is that he will go. That is to ride along with him according to his agenda not continually badgering him with ours and holding him hostage to our hopes and dreams as if he owed that to us. But rather to see that what he's doing is actually bigger and better than what we want. I want to not worry about money. He wants to make all things new. I want to be in healthy shape and live into my 80s. He wants to raise the dead and make me live forever. I want to not have relational pain or brokenness in family relationships or friend relationships, right? He wants to unite all things in Christ so that we live in a life of love that thrives forever. 
I want people to not be hungry. I, I want Philadelphians to not experience food insecurity and homelessness and hunger. He wants all people to be whole and to live in an earth that teems with goodness and thriving agriculture and that everyone has enough to eat and that we all share generously and we all want what's best for one another and we love it. We can't do that apart from him. We don't dream up this kind of stuff, but he does. He envisions a world set right. He's making it real and he's bringing us with him. And the invitation to join Jesus in that is to say, I'm gonna put my hope in you and I'm gonna ask you to change what I hope for. Rather than start with what I hope for and demand that you show up in that way. The invitation is to follow Jesus all the way to the cross so that we would be like those women who stayed those last remaining few who were there at the very end. Everybody else bailed because everybody else was disappointed. Everybody else was disillusioned. Everybody else had had enough or they were scared. But those few women remained. The invitation to follow Jesus is to go the way that he goes, which is not just to go to the cross. There's so much more, but it is certainly not to avoid it. And so to follow Jesus into the future and into our lives is to go with him into those relational spaces, right? Into the places of prayer, into the places of community, into the places of generosity, into the places of serving one another, into the places of saying, here I am, Lord, send me. Where would you have me to go? So that we begin to relate differently to our money, differently to our dreams, differently to our boundaries, maybe even in some ways, differently to our family and to our friends and to our neighbors, where we seek the good of the place where God has planted us. Palm Sunday is an occasion to recognize the blessedness of Jesus and his rejection so that we can recognize the blessedness that we experience and can experience in moments like that when we would think everything's going wrong. Where are you disillusioned today? Where are you disappointed? Where are you experiencing frustration or loss? Where do you need to know the consolation of the God who makes himself known in this humble king who rides on to die? This humble king who rides on to be rejected, to be misunderstood, to have everything stripped away, to have everything about his life look as though everything had gone wrong. And yet in him was the hope of the world and upon him was the favor of the Lord. This is the one we're joined to. This is the one who leads us. And this is the savior who has come to get us because of the unrelenting love of God who will go to every length to bring us home. Will you hope in him? Will you go where he leads? And will we ride on in humility as Jesus did? That's the invitation of Palm Sunday as our hopes are realigned and we hope in him. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, our humble king, we pray to you. God, we thank you for the ways that you reveal to us our belovedness even in the experiences of life that would seem to say otherwise. We thank you for your courage and your compassion in Jesus to live a life in the world 
that wasn't the life of plenty and self-service we would expect from a king. But yet you entered the world as one who gives, as one who loves, as one who prays, as one who embraces. God, would you help us sort through our disordered hopes? Would you help us to become more open to you and your leading? Would you help us to hold with open hands our hopes and our dreams and the desires of our hearts and bring them to you? And rather than holding you hostage to our hopes, would you draw us in to a pure and simple hope in you? And would you change what we want to fit what you want for the world? Would you take up our agendas and conform them to yours so that with our energy, with our effort, with our love, with our work, with our zeal, we would strive after what you want and that we would do it in fellowship with you. We need your help for that and we pray for it now on this Palm Sunday. Through Christ our Lord, amen.